We have a joint presentation today. Uncle Jim, we have the grandniece of James West Calogli, who was, uh, he first entered the Bitterroot Valley in 1895. So with our purpose of our thing was to try to bring early settlers early in uh, uh, Elizabeth Calogli Bacon is the, the grandniece of James West Calogli, and she's gonna talk about the early days. But the first folks, the first citizens of the United States of America that entered the Bitterroot Valley, as Bruce was discussing, were the, the core discovery of Lewis and Clark. Um, as, Bruce, uh, as Vic was mentioning, I'm a registered professional engineer. Just out of curiosity, uh, I want to ask, and, and the engineers I brought along don't respond. <laughs> and the reason I'm doing this, I've given talks on Lewis and Clark. Well, how many engineers are in the room, the audience? One. That's the first time I've given dozens and dozens of talks on Lewis and Clark over the years. <coughs> groups larger than this, smaller than this, and I've never, ever had a single engineer raise their hand. That they, So it's interesting, the group of people that find Lewis Clark interesting. What I found, the reason I asked that question was, uh, in the book, who, how many of you bought and read the book Trail Between the Rivers? Good. In that book, it discusses Lost Trail and Lost Trail Pass and finding the campsite and finding the trail. Uh, and uh, Bruce mentioned why he was interested in Lewis and Clark. The reason I got interested because of that word lost trail, those two words together. Clark, as Bruce mentioned, showed maps. Um, here's, a, here's a segment of the, you can pass it around the room. And it's in, it's in a, a uh, canvas. It's the part of lost trail. You look at that, and then when Bruce showed you, he pointed to some spots on the trail. But if you just pick up that map yourself, there's no you are here. You have to figure out where you are. So we'll pass that around and look at it. Uh, now, how many engineers are in the room, including the guys I brought? About half the room. And so there's a sizable group of people that spent time in this Lost Trail area. And I assure you, Lost Trail is not lost. Uh, it's a very interesting story. But it's, it, it was right where Clark shows it. The campsite is right where this gentleman, James Westcalogley, found it. His grandniece has traveled nearby there. And we're going to go through this 12-mile interesting stretch of the Lewis Clark Trail of how the Corps of Discovery got into the Bitterroot Valley. And then Bruce did a great job of how they went on their way. <coughs> this is James Westcalogley. He was, uh, he, uh, how many of you are aware of Galogley Hot Springs? He was the one that uh, got a patent from the Forest Service and made that pool that's at Lost Trail Hot Springs. But he was, before that, he was a, a mine assayer in Gibbonsville, just over the, the pass. And he traversed from Sula to Gibbonsville many, many times. He knew from reading the journals, uh, and a lot of the, the uh, historians and experts say that Lewis and Clark went up Moose Creek and came over the over the pass and uh, camped on the ridge the night before. Well, they didn't do that. And he knew they didn't do that because the Sula, I mean, excuse me, the Moose Creek drainage did not describe the words of horses falling. There's no place up either, uh, you know, the, the, the passes to the east of uh, the, north, the north fork of the Salmon where horses are going to fall. It had to be a much tougher deal. And that's what we're going to go over. And you, and probably, that Bruce was talking about numbers, you know, um, there was 33 in the core discovery, 33 humans. 
at that time, 29 horses out of uh, the Shoshone because they were they, they couldn't spare all the horses they wanted. Uh, and then the, the, we led. There was a reenactment of that Lost Trail ascent in 2005. There was, there was 25 in that group. How many of the, the folks that did the, the Explorers Club reenactment in 2005 were in the room? And Margaret. So. And then there was a couple other folks that James Westcologa we were going to talk about that he went, went up there when he did it. So probably less than 70 people or 75 people have ever actually ascended the, where Lewis and Clark ascended the Lost Trail. <coughs> and this is the Globley family, 1931. Uh, that uh, Elizabeth Globley Bacon is going to talk about. There's uh, James Westcologa and Aunt Polly. Aunt Polly. Martha Blake. Martha Blake. And, and her daughter Elsie. Yeah, they lived in the lower Sula, Bitterroot Valley for oh, 50 years. And they, they ranched and so forth and so on. Uh, those are the, the names she just mentioned. <coughs> and so I talk about the locals in the Sula area from 1895 to present. Because here is young Miss uh, 85 year old. 80 years, 85 years young, uh, she's, you're going to want to talk to her after this session, most interesting part of our whole talk. Uh, there's her two sons and a friend of theirs. We recently went up and uh, I've got a map up here. I don't know if many of you saw just recently in the, uh, in the paper that the Bitterroot National Forest, actually Fred Cooper here from the uh, Smoke Jumpers, recently cleared uh, three miles of the descent trail so you can now go up and you can walk literally in the footsteps of Lewis and Clark because the ridges are so narrow where those 29 horses, 33 people, that's a big footprint, you know, and there's only 10 feet, 12 feet of width where the ridges come together, you know right where they are. So that's not a proven campsite like Toronto's Rest, but it's a proven geographic location where you, if you want to stand in the footsteps of Lewis and Clark, you can do it now. Here's a map, uh, and it's on the back of today's... Uh, Forest Service map is a map called that uh, globally calls Carpenter's Map. This is drawn by the Forest Service in 1930. Shows the families that lived in the Sula Basin, Sula Valley, that Elizabeth's going to talk about here a little bit. And it shows where uh, uh, Lewis and Clark ascended, descended, and then subsequently ascended to go back to the Big Hole, as Bruce was talking about, to pick up their, their goods. And uh, one thing, an interesting story about why, why they, when they had 50 horses, right, Bruce? They were making time. They got up, over, down, into the big hole, picked up their stuff. Anybody know why they went, went so fast? It's called tobacco. They had no, they had no uh, stores because they were going to pick it all up there. But in their cache you know, over by Dillon, they had left uh, a large quantity of tobacco. They were going through. <coughs> So these are the and that map. These are the families. Let's going to mention a couple of them. Uh, and there was a stage that went from 19 to up, ran up to 1924 down to Sula, but it took four days to get to Hamilton from Sula. So they were pretty much, as Liz can talk about, they were a very close knit community for years and years and years in the south of Sula. And there's uh, the, the Pine Knot Ranch where uh, Liz is going to talk about where she went to visit her uncle back in a long time ago. And there's looking, this is looking north, looking south. 
and the other one was looking uh, north. So Elizabeth is going to talk now a little bit about her, the life and times of the Bitterroot Valley, and then I'm going to come back and finish up about the engineering <coughs> part, why all these engineers are here, to give a little uh, emphasis to uh, where, why things aren't lost. Go ahead, Liz. Yeah, all right. I'm going to change the slide to well, it's nice to be with you all today, too. Um, th this assignment from Ted has brought back a lot of memories. My uh, trip to Missoula from Detroit, Michigan took three days. Well, it took them four days to go to Hamilton. <laughs> I, I came on the Northern Pacific train all by myself as a 12th birthday present <coughs> for my parents to visit my father's relatives out in the valley. And I'd heard about them as long as I'd been alive because my grandfather, Uncle Jim's older brother, uh, came back almost every summer and my father just loved the Bitterroot Valley and came back every chance he had. So I was very excited about coming here my first impression meeting these relatives for the first time, elderly, Uncle Jim was, I think he was about 70 at that time, uh, and he was the baby of the family. But they and that wonderful piney smell you had in Missoula when there were a lot of, um, I guess they were what, lumber mills or, but the air had this wonderful, smell I never experienced before. And as we drove uh, down the valley, or up the valley, I should say, to Sula, the relatives pointed out a number of things that we just heard about, all these campsites along the way. And then we went through that beautiful canyon and then burst out into Ross's Hole and went to the ranch. And you just saw a picture of the ranch house. The family, um, my great uncle had several careers, as Ted mentioned. He started as a miner. And then he worked for the Forest Service for 10 years as first a uh, forest guard, and then a deputy ranger, and then a ranger. And he was the first one in the family to come into the valley um, because he came down from Gibbonsville to visit friends who had purchased, in some way, the natural hot spring there. And they had built a 14-room house hoping to have visitors from Gibbonsville, which at that time was a town of 5,000 people. But unfortunately, the gold mine closed, and so the Allen brothers who had built this this re resort um, had to get rid of it and my great uncle Jim was lucky enough to be able to to get it and to get all the surrounding land through the Homestead Act he brought his Aunt Polly or asked Aunt Polly who was a maiden lady to come and and live on the property to uh, prove up on it, which was finally done. And so anyway, he was a miner, and then he was a forest ranger, and then in 1917, they moved into the ranch house. He became a rancher, 
And at the end of his life, he built the swimming pool and all the cabins at the springs, and, and the family became resort managers. So that was the progression. But when I first arrived, there was no electricity in the valley at all, at least at this end of it. And I was amazed by the ranch house because it had electric lights <coughs> and <clears throat> it had indoor plumbing. And there were two bathrooms in the house. And the kitchen was a bit primitive by my standards uh, coming from the east. We, there was a wood stove and a pump on the sink and um, some I don't remember how they kept their food cold, whether that was electric or just ice, I can't remember. But the house was very spacious. It had five bedrooms and a sleeping porch, a very comfortable living room with a big fireplace that had one of Aunt Polly's paintings hanging over it. And um, it was enhanced by Aunt B's green thumb, she had this incredible ivy plant that she had trained to go up the side of the win window on the south wall, and it trailed along just under the ceiling all across the room, and it was nice to have that greenery in the house. Um, some of our activities in those days, this was in 1943, um, the war was on. And every evening, uh, we had a radio, and every evening we gathered around that to listen to the war news. The day started with Uncle Jim, um, who was a wonderful man, very kind, very shy in a way. Um, I didn't get to know him as well as the ants because he was off working with the sheep that were on the property then and the irrigation system and all the things one does on a ranch. But um, he started our day at the breakfast table by reading a Bible passage, which we discussed briefly. And I, I went to Sunday school and church, but I, we didn't read the Bible every day at home. So that was another new experience for me. To balance that side of Uncle Jim, um, evidently he was known for his swear word vocabulary, which was quite creative and amusing, although the ladies of the family didn't get to hear that. Um, anyway, uh, we were kept busy at that time. When I first arrived, it was haying season, and as you all know, the neighbors helped each other moving from ranch to ranch. And they happened to be on the pine knot when I arrived, and we made lunch for them and gallons of lemonade, which we took out to the pastures. And uh, so that was interesting. Um, I had not realized how much time was spent just getting food for every day and to last through the winter because, of course, I live in area and we went to the store. But there were chickens outside the kitchen door and they were served for dinner at times and I helped pluck them. And one of the really fun times we had, 
was an excursion over the pass to Idaho to pick huckleberries. And we pulled off Highway 93 in a wide place. We had all these uh, metal pails and we banged on them as we walked some distance into the forest to scare the bears away. And the berry patch was enormous. It must have been several acres. And we spent the whole day there picking huckleberries. We'd take them back to the car and then return and pick more. And then I think uh, we spent and several days back in the kitchen making jam and canning them and so forth. And my parents were very thrilled when I brought some of the jam home. <laughs> um, another very interesting trip that, um, sort of an excursion that I was able to share in was the ritual climb by the family every summer up Saddle Mountain, to the top of Saddle Mountain. We drove the car up to the base of the ski hill, and it was amazing to me uh, to find a ski hill out here in the wilds of Montana in 1943. Um, I had learned to ski in Michigan because my parents took up skiing early on, but that was very new in the history of skiing in this country. Anyway, from there we hiked up Saddle Mountain looking for animals. And that day I had so much fun with Uncle Jim. He went to college in Ohio where he grew up and I think he must have majored in geology because he knew so much about rocks. And he showed me the interesting ones that we, as we went along. And, um, the thing he was always looking for was a perfect quartz crystal. And I guess you could find them occasionally. And, and he found one that day. And he gave it to me as the memento of my time with them. And what else can I tell? Oh, one very interesting um, thing about Uncle Jim. As Ted mentioned, he traveled this country that Ted talked about um, quite often during his mining days, going back and forth to the springs, but also as a forest ranger, of course, in those days they walked or rode horseback. And he, in doing that, he had been studying the Lewis and Clark expedition. Uh, Clark's maps had been discovered, I think, at his granddaughter's house in 1905, and that's when my, uh, when Uncle Jim started studying all the journals, Ordway's, White House's, Gas's, and he suddenly began to realize there are landmarks here that they're describing. And so then he really became interested in trying to find that mysterious campsite of September 3rd. And um, in doing so, he actually found an artifact up there. It was an axe head that had been manufactured in England. And who knows where it came from, but he liked to think that perhaps it had been lost during the expedition because who else would be up there with an axe that was made in, in England at that time? 
Um, what else did I want to tell you? <laughs> I think we have quite interesting questions and answers. I'm sure I'll have a lot of questions. Okay. I think perhaps I've talked enough because there's more to come, but that's a little bit from the memories of a 12-year-old at the time. <laughs> yeah. Many years later. Thanks, Elizabeth. You want to talk to her before she gets out of Dodge. But this is a good segue. Uh, her great uncle, uh, James Muscalobi, he was the force. He was a, one of the first Sula District Rangers. We had dinner last night with the current Sula District Ranger, uh, Eric Winters. And it was quite an interesting thing. The niece of one of the early District Rangers and the current one, and they, they were just in control. As she mentioned, he found some key information that is not in journals, is not, uh, and, he, and she brought with her, her her son Ned, this is stuff the Montana Historical Society loves, um, and I think she's going to make a gift of these photographs to the Montana Historical Society. I had them put up on a thing and be sure to come by and look at them. These, up until about a few weeks ago, these were in a, in a uh, the typical thing you read about, in a, in a uh, crate you know, with a lock on it. And her son finally cut the lock off and pulled these photographs out. It shows uh, what um, uh, Elizabeth was talking about, the Lewis and Clark um, Lost Trail study that, that uh, James did. <clears throat> so he talked about the forks. There's a, there's a no-name fork up the North Fork of the Salmon. You have the West Fork of the Salmon River. And then either you go up Moose Creek or you continue up the North Fork, and then there's a no-name fork, and he always talked about the forks. Uh, there was a lot of talk over the years of why people feel like they, it's lost, they don't know where they went, because it was, there was uh, slide rock ridges up uh, uh, the North Fork of Salmon, and horses couldn't get by there. Um, and he found globally secret passage, where there's a 30-foot strip of grass where you can get horses by there, where they did get horses by there. And then he found the south to north route travel up uh, to Golgosiva Passage, where the game used to go. And so he found the way they ascended uh, the, the dividing ridge uh, on the, in the, uh, up the north fork of the Salmon. He also found the campsite. Uh, and this is pretty much another, most of the theory about the Lost Trail campsite is lost, can't be found, uh, it's too ambiguous. But I, th and I never, how many of you are aware that there's a Clark has a contradiction in the journals where he says we camped on the North Fork of the Salmon, Fish Creek, and he also says we camped on the headwaters of the, of the uh, Coulter Creek. How many of you are aware that there's a contradiction? See all these Lewis and Clark people, experts? Well, I have to admit, I wasn't aware there's a contradiction either. I always used the Ordway's journal here because for some reason Ordway put the most engineering information in his journal direct directions, uh, direction of the stream running and so forth. Well, in Clark's Codex, in September 1385, I'm sure you're all going to run home and read this, you know. He says at the end of the day, they passed over High Pine Mountain to head of a drain running to the left, which is Coulter Creek, or, or the, the tributary. Some folks think it's Shields Creek, but, but uh, you know, basically, I think, uh, Margaret, you finally have agreement. You know, you know uh, your friend uh, uh, Steve, uh, um, one of the four guys that did that, that, that symposium in uh, Salmon, Steve, uh, uh, 
Dr. Bergantino, uh, Steve Russell, Globally, and Ted Hall. I wasn't part of that symposium, but all four agree now where the campsite is, and you're gonna, I'm going to show you a picture of it. You know, uh, Bergantino and Russell didn't get there correctly because they didn't ground truth the Moose Creek ascent. You can't, you can't get to where they said the campsite is from Moose Creek. Because um, you go there, there's a rock ridge that, that goes from all the way to top to bottom that blocks any traverse from Moose Creek drainage. But in his journal, he said they, they uh, pass over High Pine Mountain too. Remember, there's always in the, the codex, the journal entries of the, the compass direction, there was always end with the two, two something, two a geographic feature, two a drain on the left. But in the same journal, this is the journal entry of the day where he writes about the day, he says, with great difficulty, we made blank miles and encamped on a branch, and that's how he spelled branch, of the creek. We ascended after crossing one high pine mountain. So basically, on the same page, he's saying we camped on uh, the North Fork of the Salmon and we camped on Poultry Creek. Well, how can you, how can that be? How can you camp at two locations in the same? So he, James Wescalobi, you know, if you read his memoirs, which, uh, are fascinating. You have to go to uh, the Montana Sword Society and get out. They're in the Martha Edgerton Plasman archives. He said all this stuff. Um, he said that was the solution to the puzzle. See, no hands raised in here. Nobody was even considering that, myself included. Um, so uh, Tim Lee is going to show you a, a ruler flyby of this ascent and descent here. But here's an excerpt of Clark Maps again of the same area of starting at benchmark 5811 on uh, Highway 93 as you're coming up to go to the pass uh, into Montana. How many of you are familiar with that, that uh, Swift uh, Highway 93 location? Yeah, all the way down there. So here, this is the decision point where some folks think 18 degrees east and north, they went this way, and some of us globally and Hall think they kept going and then 18 degrees east to north is is that compass reading. See these two things are in that terrain over there is so variable. If you don't keep track of the geographic features, what I call ground truthing, if you don't go in the field and put your feet right in where the, the twos where Clute Clark said I went to this ridge, to this river, to this creek, you lose track and if you do it just on a, a quad map on a, on a drawing, you're gonna you're not you're gonna get here. You're not going to get where they went. Uh, so anyway, this is a decision point, and Globe and Hall think they went this way, um, and they end up up here at, at the campsite. This is the other side coming down from the ridge, and this yellow here, and this is the map, that, uh, the Forest Service map. I hope you each take one. It has, again, it has a 1930 Carpenter map on it. It shows, it shows where Globe went. Uh, it, it, it ground truths and proves that they went up the North Fork of the Salmon and then the current Forest Service map of this clear trail that the smoke jumpers, courtesy of Fred Cooper and his guys, uh, did. And then the other thing that's interesting is, look at the proximity that, that Bruce was talking about. Here's the 1806 back to uh, the Big Hole to get their, their, their gear, and here's the descent. The, the ascent and descent are within about a quarter of a mile of each other, a hundred year apart. Ten. 
Here's all the slide rock that they talk about in the journals. This is the unnamed fork uh, that goes off to the west. And here's the slide rock field they had to get around. And uh, he found a globally secret passage. Right, Margaret? Remember that? Went above the slide rock? <coughs> but the high, high, high spot, it's a rock flat level um, plateau. Here, the, the, the fifth course of the day, north 32 degree west, if you notice, they have to turn to 32 west, which is the, the orientation of that ridge. Because if they didn't, they, they'd go down into the hole. <coughs> and then this is the last course of the day. It talks about a high hill. There's a hill up on the top of a mountain. And that's 40 north 40 degrees west to the cove, which is in the depression. I showed you the picture uh, on the oh, back side of the river. We're done. Sorry. So anyway, uh, I'm sure there'll be a lot of discussion about this over the years, but uh, my, our, our position, my position is, Deloby's position is, that uh, lost trail is an incorrect, two words should not be together, should be lost pass. They, they wanted to go up to the pass at Lisbon, but they didn't do it. So they lost the pass for a day, not the trail. The trail is right where Clark grew up on his maps, right where there's country starting a, a movement to change Lost Trail Pass, the name of it, <laughs> so they converted here today to Lost Pass, you what the only one of the name uh, uh, instead of Lost Trail Pass. And Bruce mentioned why did he get interested. I think, I, I still don't know why I got interested in most part. I'm not a real, uh, and, none, and, and none of the engineers here much are, except Jim, Tim, Tim has really got into the Lewis and Clark's stuff. really good. The reason I got interested in Lewis Clark, I think, and another, we're in the process of publishing another book called Lost Pass, which has all this information in it, is because of the name Lost Trail. Clark, that's insulting to Clark to call that Lost Trail. But the work he did, the maps he drew, that come through he shows exactly where they were every step, every step of the way. And so to call somebody a lost trail is not right. And that's, so that's my story. Thank you.